You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features P.K. Kersey. P.K. is an author of multiple books and the president and founder of That Suits You, a nonprofit organization that provides clothing and training to assist men in their transition into the workforce. P.K. grew up in East New York, where his parents raised him to get a good, stable job that would take him all the way to retirement. Now, it took PK a few years to follow the more traditional path, but once he did, he landed an opportunity at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Over the course of his 24-year career there, he noticed a large number of male applicants who were turned away because they were not dressed properly. That inspired him to start providing suits to others in hopes of giving them a leg up in interviews. PK was actually doing what his own pastor had done for him when he landed his interview at the DMV all those years ago. His acts of kindness eventually turned into a full-fledged nonprofit organization, which he launched with his brother. That Suits You has now served over 9,500 men and partnered with countless organizations from Major League Baseball to radio station WBLS. And despite the challenges of the pandemic, PK continues to forge ahead. So here's his story. PK, welcome to the December 26er podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So excited for this opportunity and I'm um, looking forward to the conversation. Likewise. So I was saying before we get we got started that um, I should have known you were going to come suited up, given <laughs> what your whole brand is about. And I'm, I'm up here all casual, but uh, we always tell people to come as they are and to bring their full personal brand uh, to the experience. So I'm so happy that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is, uh, you know, during all this funny time we've been, I really haven't been dressing up a lot. You know, I've been wearing maybe a that suit you hoodie, that suit you shirt or casual. But just like last week or two weeks, I went to an event and I was pretty casual. And I was like, you know, that's really not my style. That's not really how I feel comfortable. So I said, you know, I'm going to start dressing up more. So I was grateful for this opportunity. We had another opportunity, you know, to wear a little tie shirt and jacket and, um, you know, that's how I really like to feel comfortable that way. So, thank you. Well, you're looking clean, as the, the old heads say. <laughs> so, let's jump into it. Who is PK Kersey? Wow, that's a deep question. I mean, PK to me, um, just a guy from Brooklyn. I grew up in East New York. Uh, my mother, she worked for Verizon for 30 years. My father, uh, who unfortunately passed a couple of years ago, he worked for Transit for about 25 years. And they just raised me, my brother and my sister to have a, a solid work ethic. You know, a lot of my friends, they didn't have their parents around. So I was pretty fortunate to have both parents in the household. Uh, I mean, it was some challenging times, but, um, you know, it's like we didn't even know how challenging they were. We just went through it and we grew, you know, I went to East New York High School, went to Brooklyn College, and I started working for the state for about 25 years. And um during that time, I learned so much about myself and about uh, the community, people dealing with people, interacting. And one of the things that I noticed was that I began to have a really strong connection to wanting to help my community, wanting to see my community uplifted because I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me working for the um, New York State. So that it began to burn a hunger in me to want to do more for my community. 
So talk to me more about growing up in that dynamic in East New York, because those of us from the outside looking in, what we heard about East New York, particularly from a specific era, is like urban blight is dangerous. You don't hear your story a lot, right? In, in that you had two parents in the home with these really stable jobs. So for you growing up in that environment, but my, maybe having seen something different outside, how did you, how did your inside environment influence you versus what was going on in the streets, for lack of a better term? I mean, thinking about it now, it's like you don't realize what, what really was happening back then. Um, I mean, my, our house was broken into. We lived on Cozine in the projects. Our house was broken into a few times. My mother was uh, burglarized, was robbed, um, people, guns around us. You know, it, it, you, I didn't realize how toxic and dangerous it was because we just growing up, living, having fun. But it really was an unsafe, crazy time. And I really thank God that both of my parents, that structure was there because it's so easy at that time to go one way, make a bad decision. A lot of my friends uh, went to prison. Some of them are not around. So, I mean, just having them there, I mean, I can't really express how important that was to me. And that was my stepfather. So my mother and my biological father, I'm a junior, uh, my biological father um, who's in my life, but he wasn't in my life at that time. So I was just fortunate to have my stepfather, that uh, steady man presence in my life that made a tremendous difference. Um, now, he wasn't one of the fathers who was like, who would give you a hug and say, I love you and say, you know, he, that wasn't him. <laughs> he wasn't, if you was looking for that, you're not going to get that. But just the, his, his presence, his consistency played a, a big role. And I really believe it helped me. And that helped me to help my brother to really um, become the people that we are today. And how old were you when your stepfather entered your life? I actually was in their wedding. So I was five, I was five or six years old when my mother married my stepfather. So he's been, he's been in my life a very long time. So he's, you know, been around since you were like super, super young. Did you at some age have an awakening? Like, this is not my real dad. And, and with that, like a longing for a relationship with your biological father. Uh, great question. Um, the funny thing is, I look so much like my mother, right? And I look up, I, I look, I resemble my biological father, but people used to always tell me when I was growing up from five to 10 to 12, oh, you look just like your mother. And I used to be like, my stepfather would be right there. I'd be like, no, I don't. I look like my stepfather. Well, I look nothing like, I look, <laughs> I look nothing like the man, but I used to want to be like him so much. And, and uh, I used to tell people, no, I resemble him. But, um, that's how much of an impact that he made on me. And I really didn't think too much about my biological father because I had him in my life. So it wasn't until I started working for DMV when I was like, you know, I think it would be a good idea for me to um, reach out and just talk to him, you know, never know what's going on. So I looked him up on a DMV computer, I found his address. We have the same name, so it wasn't that difficult. I uh, found him, I sent him a letter. And from that letter, uh, I invited him to my home uh, me and my wife at the time, living in Brooklyn, I invited him to my home and we built a relationship from that day. So him and my mother, they haven't really spoken maybe once or twice in all that time. But I think it was important for me to make that connection. And I'm, I was glad I did. I'm glad I did because, uh, you know, he is my biological father. And I think that's important that we have as many positive uh, male, black male role models in our life as possible. So I know sometimes when there's a reunion of that nature and it's later in life when you've already reached adulthood, 
there are some difficult conversations that could be had around presence or absence. Did you feel any need to bring any of that to the table or was it more just about, you know what, I'm here to start having a relationship from this day forward? No, the funny thing about that, I didn't really come in with those questions or like, where were you? You know, you see those things on TV and those are those are real situations. But I, funny enough, I guess because I felt so complete or secure because of my mother, unconditional, strong presence of love and my stepfather, love and structure. I really didn't have that. Um, but the funny thing is he had that. So he came in expecting me to have Yo, wow, you wasn't in my life. Well, he, I, I believe he expected me to have that type of energy. And I really wasn't on that time. I just was like, no, I, I want to bring you in my life. I want to, I want to have this relationship with you. Not trying to bring up old stuff or what happened. But he told me a lot of things that I didn't even ask him. So I think it was more so on his heart and that he wanted to share with me to let me know why he wasn't there, which I appreciated. But it really wasn't something that I was like, you know, I got to have answers, you know, I need to know what, what was going on. So. It was it was a it was a interesting uh, first encounter, but I'm glad that we definitely had it and built on that. Which and I think and I won't say that this is every experience that is like this, but I, I think when there is another male figure in the home whom you may not be biologically related to, but who is stepping up and being a provider and a protector and being a dad, essentially. For some people, they don't necessarily feel the void in the, in the same way because they feel that they they haven't missed anything, right? They right. built this connection, especially when that connection happens when you're so young, right? right. So, so you see your, your mother and your stepfather on these longstanding jobs, which is really, you know, old school, right? You get a good job, <laughs> you stay there until retirement, right. you get your benefits, all of that. Did you ever feel a pull to be in the streets? Um. I really didn't have that energy, like to be a street dude, but I did have the energy to, I was, you know, don't laugh at me, but I did, you know, I danced for salt and pepper. I danced for, uh, <laughs> I danced for, um, you know, uh, a lot of rappers and, and hip hop videos. I had the high top, uh, with the blonde, you know, I, you know, that was my era. So that was, I, that's what I was into. I was in the streets that way. You know, I love, I love the ladies. You know, I like being around. <laughs> that was kind of my thing. So as far as the, the the violent nature of East New York, I was very much involved in it as far as my people, my friends were, but I wasn't a partaker of that. That wasn't me. I was more so on the entertainment, the girls partying. That was more so my uh, experience growing up. Okay, so we're not going to glaze over that because now all I'm picturing is the salt and pepper push it video. Um, so let's talk about that. I mean, how did you, and what year, um, so this had to be what, late eighties? This is late eighties. Right. Yeah. So hip hop has exploded onto the scene now. And in a lot of ways it's becoming mainstream opportunities are everywhere, particularly in New York. Um, but how did you get involved in being a dancer for hip hop? (laughs) I can't believe I'm talking about this. Yeah. Listen, we get into everything. You brought it up. So we're going there. Um, well, picture this, East New York, young black male. I'm, I'm, I'm so much of an introvert. So now I'm just like, I'm like to keep to myself. I'm not out there. I'm not like that. But, um, going to high school, you know, dancing became a thing. You know, we started seeing videos and people dancing 
and started, I was like, this could be my, this is like my introduction to meeting ladies, meeting girls, you know, being more, you know, outside. And, and I just, I love to dance. I really had a desire and I was pretty good at it. So um, well, a friend I had met, he went to August Martin, August Martin High School uh, named Deshaun and my other, one of my best friends, Mark, we formed a group called INC. Uh, you know, like the clothing line, INC. He was I, um, Mark was N, and I was uh, and I was C. So that was our, you know, that was our thing. So, and they, he had connections to Salt Pepper and Kirby and all these people. So they were looking for dancers. So the video that we're in with them was uh, Express Yourself. You know, and that video had the big high top. And then the other video with uh, New Jack Swing, we was in that one as well. So, you know, people started to recognize me. I'm feeling good. So I went from being an uh, introvert to now I'm, I'm exploding. I'm dancing. I'm meeting new people. I like, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting people. I'm growing. And so I, and then I was like, people really don't believe that I'm from East New York because I was kind of like sheltered by my parents with a lot of experience. I, like I said, I was I knew about a lot of things that were going on, but I really wasn't partaking in it. So now I'm in this dancing environment. You got drugs. You got alcohol, you got women, you got, um, and the, at that time, I mean, it's no big thing, but at that time, it was a huge dancing uh, population, and a lot of them were homosexuals. So it was like, it was so, I was just thrown into a world where it was just crazy. But um, so it was just a lot going on. But, but I, I appreciate that time going through it because I learned so much, I met so many good people. It was just a lot to take in. And it really, I believe if I didn't have that two-family parent structure, that I really could have been a lot worse for me because it was so much that go from zero to 100. And if I didn't have that baseline of structure, it could have been really a different situation. And what did your parents think about you being in this world, considering that they were so traditional? I think my mother thought I was going crazy because... (laughs) Like I said, I just went from, in her eyes, my little son, my beautiful boy, and to now I got the tie top. I mean, it's, I had one of the high ones, the blonde streak in the front. I'm dancing. I'm hanging out all night. But she was a she was a praying mama. She prayed, and she just, you know, one time <laughs> she said, when I went from, you know, the high top was gone, the error went over, so I got dreads. And she really didn't like that boy because it was like dreads first came out. So I went from having these dreads, long dreads, to, I mean, these long hot tops, to now I got dreads. And she just, when I walked in one time at three o'clock in the morning from hanging out, and she just looked at me like, she looked at me like that. <laughs> she just shook her head. Like, I can't believe this is my son. But um, yeah, it was just some crazy times. And you know, we're, we're going to, I know you feel like this is completely different than what you came on here to talk about. But no, I love it. We're going to circle back to this as we talk about the work that you do in terms of providing suits for others and self-expression and dealing with young men and all of that. So this let's put a pin in this because I I, I definitely am interested in how your experience informs how you approach men now who may be in their their phase of wearing whatever hair they want and doing doing whatever they do. Um, But going back to your personal story, so you, you go through this hip hop era. Um, but what were your career aspirations? Because clearly that was a moment in time. You went to college. What were you looking to do at that point? I was like, um, I had got skipped. I went to junior high school, George Gershwin, very intelligent. I got skipped. 
Uh, I was put in a special program for computers, uh, computer programming. Went to high school, a special computer program. So in my mind, I'm thinking eventually I'm going to be doing computer programming or working with computers. That's when computers are really starting to take off. So I was going to do something in the computer field. But right after high school, when I graduated and I went to Brooklyn College, that's when all the hip hop and dancing and everything started. And I kind of got detoured off of everything. I mean, I just went, like, I lost focus. I started just going into, like I said, the dancing and the partying. And I really wasn't, a, did, didn't do drugs or alcohol or anything like that. But I just got lost focus of what I thought I was going to be doing. And um, it was that it was a gap between graduating high school and starting to work at Department Motor Vehicle. So graduating high school in 86. And then I just started working with Department Motor Vehicle in 1993. So it was that seven-year gap where I was just like, didn't have the focus I needed. Where I don't want to say waste the time, but I really wasn't being productive like I should have been. So when you come from a home like yours, right? And I think... Many people have a story like yours in that they have a period of creativity or they're just trying to figure it out. But when something very different was modeled for you, I think sometimes there can be like psychological effects, even though you're doing what you want to do. Right. And in that Mm -hmm. moment, did you feel a sense of guilt at the time or like I'm really out here wasting time or were you just like "I'm, I'm living in the moment? I think it was half and half. The first half of it, I was like, I got scared. You know, I'm a little ahead of my friends. You know, I, I'm just going to live. I'm enjoying myself. I love what I'm doing. You know, when we danced, we traveled all over the country. We went places. We met so many people. Hip hop was just starting to take off. I was loving it. So that, but then the second half of it, after the dancing, you know, you can't dance. Very few dancers that get retirement packages. So you can't <laughs> dance forever. So after that, the second part of that was when I was trying to figure out, okay, now what am I going to do? How am I going to get money? How am I going to, you know, do some things that I want to do? I can't live my mother's house, you know. So all that's when all those questions started coming up later. So the first part of it, I was Gucci. I was, this is what is, I'm happy. This is what we're doing. The second part of it is when you begin to think about, wow, okay, what moves do I need to make? How am I going to do that? Not having really a mentor or somebody to guide me under this, the things that I should be doing, just figuring it out all by myself. That was the second part where I was very concerned. So you get this opportunity at the DMV, get the job, right? But that couldn't be farther on the other end of the spectrum from what you were doing before. And a lot of people who are creatives or in these really exciting fields have a really hard time with jobs and professions that are monotonous in a lot of of ways. And not to mention, like, you know, there's a running joke that people who work for like the DMV, the social security office, just hate their lives and are looking for every opportunity to make everybody else's life miserable. So even though you had come to that conclusion, like, okay, I need to buckle down and and do something else. How did you settle into that role without feeling boredom or like there could be more out there? So I took the test, you know, the, the test with DMV comes out. I took it. I was always very smart guy. So I got like a high school at 97. And then they don't call you for a while. They graded, then they give you a rank. My rank was very high. I think I was ranked number 20 out of thousands of people. So I had a date to go down for the interview, but I wasn't going to go because I didn't have anything to wear. Mm. If I'm in the street, all I got is Kwame polka dots and, you know, uh, jeans, suspenders, 
and big club shoes. You know, that's all I had. So I said, man, I'm not going down to that interview. Still living in my mother's house. She saw the letter on my dresser that said I had an interview. She just happened to come in and see it. And she was like, Gerard, you got an interview uh, in two days. I said, yeah, but I'm not going because I don't have anything to wear. Now, imagine telling a black mother that you're not going to an interview while you sitting there eating her uh, Apple Jacks and toast and f- making four eggs. I'm, I'm scrambling eggs, so I ain't going on the interview. She said, oh, oh yes, you are going on the interview. So uh, thank God that my pastor friend, he bought me a suit and some shoes. I had a tie shirt. And my mother, you know, she orchestrated it. And I went down there for the interview and got the job. So as far as the monotony, I think that at that time, it was something that I needed to kind of bring me back into line alignment, bring me back into focus. It was something that I needed. So after the first few years, I really didn't mind it because I was, I, I gave great customer service. You know, I was a good employee, but it was something that I felt I needed at that time to kind of reel me back into, okay, now let's get serious about some of the things you want to do. So... How did this this job and your experience now getting into your career impact what you are now passionate about? And that is helping other men be suited for success. Oh, man, because I mean, full circle, right? After working, I worked in Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens. But I, my first day, I saw one black man. He was a director there. His name was Mr. Phelps. Shaw, suited. Older gentleman, tall. You looked at him. He looked like you know he was in, he was the man. He looked like he was in control. That made an impression on me as far as okay, there's somebody in here uh, who I can look up to as a black man that's in control. He's not you know one of the lower levels. He's higher level person director. But he was like one of the only ones that I saw after years and years of being there. I didn't see them at the top. And I didn't see a lot of them coming in where I was at. So it just be, it kept ringing in my ear, you know, why is this, what's going on, what's happening? Why are we not seeing a lot of Black men in these positions or, or high executives? Or, you know, that kept ringing in my mind. So as I started taking the test and I became a supervisor and the next supervisor and the next supervisor and then the manager, I was like one of the only few, few Black men that were had positions. So I started there. I can't, this can't be right. This can't be acceptable. And so uh, I started to think, why aren't they being hired? And it was two main reasons. One, because they didn't uh, really interview properly. And I think about me being a Black man growing up in UC York. A lot of the things that we're taught uh, or, or we experience really aren't preparing us to be to have a great interview. We're not, we're not taught to uh, talk a lot. So in interviews, if you're not talking a lot, you're not really presenting yourself well. Um, we're not, uh, as far as our posture, it's not really something that looks good probably in the interview. As far as um, our faces, we probably look mean or angry. And so that's not that's not gonna come over well. So a lot of things that we do naturally aren't really transitioning well in the interview. And the second thing was, uh, they weren't, when they came up in interviews, they weren't dressed properly. You know, they would wear jeans, maybe a button up or maybe slacks and a button, but they really weren't wearing suits or dressing really to their highest level. So those, all those things were working against them being hired and being elevated in the system. So talking this over with my brother, I was like, you know, it's something that we could do because he's been in banking. He knows the uh, banking industry. He knows how important it is to have a great image. 
So we started this organization called That Suits You, where we started helping men initially coming home from prison, providing them with clothing, providing them with suits and ties, how to tie a tie, how to know your suit size, how to know what wear clothing that fit and how to take care of it. And then we started adding the training to it called Choices, Change, Habits, Options, Image, Communication, Effort, Equal Success. And we brought those together to, and we've assisted over 10,000 individuals and helped them to get work, to do well in school, uh, all types of things, but knowing their, how to use their image to their advantage and how to uh, get these jobs and dominate the interview process. Wow. So when starting out, you know, I think a lot of people have the experience like you had where they have this light bulb moment and they see a need and that meets their passion and they want to fill it. But a, not a lot of people build it to the level that you have. Right. They, they don't they don't know how to get it off the ground. They can't find the support. They can't find the resources. How did you get started in the beginning? You and your brother, when you said, all right, we want to help those who are coming home. How did you start to gather clothing and other resources that they needed? Well, I've always been taught that opportunity doesn't come knocking. Opportunity waits in the corner, patiently waiting to be discovered. So when we saw this opportunity, we knew we had to take advantage of it. And we had to do it primarily without help. I mean, we really grew up and did things without looking for people to save us. We knew that we, if we didn't do it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get done. So, and seeing my mother and father have that work ethic that they had and passed on to us really helped us to understand that we had to really put the work in to get this done. So as far as, you know, the first thing, one of the first things we had to find out was where are we going to get suits from? We want to give people suits, but where are we going to get suits from? So we both had a uh, you know great church background. So we started with church, going to churches and asking churches. They would do suit drives for us. And uh, where do people take their suit? They take them to cleaners. So then we started hitting up cleaners and saying, you know, we know people may leave suits here after a while. What do you do with the clothing that you get? So we started building relationships. And I think that's one of the major keys that we did well and we do well. And that's really the key to life is building solid relationships with it. If you're generally a nice person, and you can treat people nicely, that's one of the basic steps to building um, relationships and solid relationships with people. If you're just generally a mean person, it's hard for you to build uh, those type of relationships. So because we had that solid background growing up, but we, we're generally nice people. Now, I mean, not perfect people, but we're generally, at the core, we're nice people. So we're able to build relationships. We help people when we can. And we were able to get suits uh, we were able to speak to principals to get into school, speak to job training programs, to speak to the, their individuals, build with uh, city officials. And we were able to build those relationships that helped us to navigate through New York City. I mean, if we that that saying, if you can make it in New York, <laughs> you can make it anywhere. I mean, you hear it. But when you actually see what it's really about, because New York is, is so vast and so many people going after the same things. but being able to navigate your purpose through all everything else that's going on. That takes a skill. It takes pre perseverance. And um, building those relationships, I think, was so key for us to do on the things that we do. And I think there's an important lesson here because oftentimes when people think about a not-for-profit or these types of community initiatives, they may jump straight to money. Can you donate? Can you donate? I'm trying to get a grant. Where do I get the money from? And you need money, right? There's certain overhead and administrative expenses 
that you got to take care of. But there's so many other opportunities that are built on the backs of those relationships. And, and, and oftentimes, I think, too, people may not even realize how they can help you. Right. They may be thinking like, well, I can't write a check. I, I don't know what else I can do for you. And oftentimes it takes you as the person who's asking to say, here are the ways in which I think you could be an asset to us. And I find that it's rare you just get a hard no from people. If it doesn't involve them opening their wallets, they, they will find a way right. uh, to provide service and contribute in some way. Right. And I, I, that's a great point. I often tell people also, um, just because you may not be able to do something that you think you can do, what you can do, you can spread the word because I could be one or two people away from the person I need to know simply by you sharing the message. So it, it's not always giving money because money, somebody gives money, that may be the end of it. But if you build that relationship and that bond and then they become your cheerleader and your marketing department and your, your PR, then they're spreading the word for you and you never know who's going to hear it from somebody else saying, I mean, we've gotten on Steve Harvey's show by building, I don't know Steve, I don't know, you know, I've never met him, but the people who I know, they know him. We've gotten on, we've built a relationship with uh, Sandra Bookman on Here and Now. I mean, I have a, a good relationship with her where I know her now, but only because of a relationship that we had with someone that was introduced. So it's like, I've been to Gail King's house. Like you think like, how is that, you know, why would I be in Gail King's house? A relationship that I had with someone and introduced, introduced her. So, I mean, it's like, it's not always about giving the money, but it's about uh, spreading the word, sharing it in your network. That's free. That don't cost you a dime. Maybe cost, cost you a share, but you never know who's going to see it and who's gonna, who, who it's going to register with and who's going to say, oh, wow, I need that or I can use that. And also, too, you never know the reach of the nonprofit that you're, you're working with. I think sometimes people chase these partnerships with organizations that they feel like are the Ford Foundation or Harlem's Children, Harlem Children's Zone or something where like, you know, they're, they're known by everyone and not realizing there may be orgs that they view as, quote unquote, smaller or secondary orgs. But the, the Rolodex is deep. I don't I don't know anybody that can say they've been to Gail King's house right? <laughs> as, as well. So I think that works both ways, both from a partner perspective and what people can offer to you by way of relationships, but also the goodwill that you've built and your reputation out there also. Right. Because right. that that's value you can bring to, to others as well. Right. 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 And, and I hate to say this comment, but it's true and it needs to be said. But people say, oh, that's not true. That can't be true. Poverty is a billion dollar industry. And you're like, I mean, why, why would you say that? We're always trying to help. And, but poverty, there are people who are who are dependent, who are building businesses based on people being poor. And if people come out of poverty, that hurts their bottom line. And when you say that, you know, it's like, oh, that's a terrible thing to say, but it's actually true. So what we're doing, we're trying to elevate people from poverty and to uh, grow, but everybody's not in agreement with that, unfortunately. I mean, there are tons of people to do, but we also have to be mindful that poverty is a billion dollar business and people uh, have businesses based on, they're building pr prisons right now because they expect our children are gonna do things that, that 
um, make that that they're going to spend their lives in prison. So they're they're preparing prisons instead of preparing other things that can help them. So we have to have the mindset. This is serious. We have to really be serious about what we're doing. Uh, we just don't want to suits suits that we give are like the um, ringing the bell. But it's so much more of the teaching and the, um, teaching them why it's important, teaching them about the image, teaching them about opening up a business, teaching them about networking, te- teaching them about marketing, teaching them about uh, their self-awareness, teaching them about their purpose, teaching them about, you know, we have a question that we ask in every single um, workshop that we do. I just want to share with you real quick. We ask them, uh, how many people, if it's 100 people there, we say, how many people believe that they can make $30,000 a year? Mostly everybody raises their hand. How many people believe they can make $30,000 a, a month? Maybe half as many people. How many people believe you make $30,000 a day? Very few people. How many people believe you make $30,000 in an hour? Maybe one or two people. And we say the same energy it took for you to raise your hand when it said $30,000 a year is the same energy it took when we said $30,000 an hour. I didn't say how you're going to do it. I just said, how many people believe? If you don't believe that these things can happen in your life, then you're not going to be able to see it. I've seen people make $30,000 an hour in a second. I've seen it happen. It's not, and when I first saw it, I was surprised, but now it's like nothing. When you think about LeBron James, make how much money? So it's not that it's impossible. It's what do you believe for yourself? If you can raise your hand for $30,000 a year, you can raise your hand for $30,000 an hour. But what you're doing now is you're training your mind and you're opening up your belief system that, wow, this can really happen for me now. Let me navigate myself and put myself in a position and be around the people where I can make that a reality. So how do you address those who've been formerly incarcerated and are, are readily aware of the challenges that face them because they have a record? When they come to you and they're like, the suit is cool, the interview training is cool, I can believe all day, but bruh, like I, I have these very real obstacles to that. How do you respond in that situation when someone is not latching on to what you're telling them right away? Uh, one of the first things is that you have to remove yourself from that normal, comfortable environment. Um, so we try to place them in, in, in places where they're going to meet other people and buy uh, let them know about different events. I'm part of a group called the Gentleman's Factory, which is about a lot of men uh, who join this and they're professionals and they have events and they come together. And we we teach the community, teach people who are in that uh, population. But it, removing yourself from, the because if you stay in the same environment, then most likely the same situation is going to happen to you. So you're going to have to remove yourself from that environment but not just the environment. You're going to have to remove your mind from that thinking. You're going to have to remove yourself from certain friends. So you, you may have real needs at the time, but you can't just say, oh, I can't really do that because I need money. Well, if you want to see the change in your life, you're going to have to make some serious decisions and some serious changes if you want to have a different result in your life. So it starts with making those uh, changes. Of course. And well, shout out. Let me pause here and say shout out to the Gentleman's Factory and Jeff Lindor, our very first December 26th guest. So he's a, a very good friend of the show um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for sure. But, you know, I, I do, too, want to talk about how you maintain your semblance of peace um, and will to proceed in this space. And I say that because when you work in areas like this and you work with 
folks who've been through all manner of trauma are dealing with structural inequality. You have a front row seat into all the things that you talked about. And, and poverty is a business. When you think about the prison industrial complex and how many billionaires eat off of that industry from the phones on down, right? Um, you, you know what we're up against. So when you think about the Goliaths, the things that you're trying to overcome and you're seeing the very real psychological and emotional effects as well of a system that's not designed for people in poverty to win, what keeps you going? A couple of things. Um, I've been uh, married for 29 years. I have two sons. Uh, they're 12 years old. So I look at them and I say, I, you know, I look at them and I say, what future do I want them to have? You know, what, how can they be proud of me and say, you know, I'm proud. This is what my father's doing. Then I look at the students that are in school who we have uh, workshops with and how they, you ever see somebody that's you just see in their mind, they're ready to receive. Like they can't, they hanging on every word. And I see how, what we are doing is having an impact on them. I see the gentleman who's been in prison for 10 years. He comes home and we throw a uh, Brooks Brothers suit on him and he's learning how to tie a double Windsor knot for the first time. I think about that. I think about the uh, the veterans who are been in, uh, in in Afghanistan or wherever, and now they're home. They, they can't find a job because they don't have anything to wear. We provide them with a tie. So we, we think about all the people that we've assisted. We think about all the work that we've done. And we think we've done some stuff, but we have so much more to do. So we think about... Uh, how, how we can continually make an impact and train and teach and support the programs and partners that we work with. So that's really what keeps keeps us going because we really have a desire for the community. I mean, can't say, uh, oh, they're just doing it because, no, we've, we feel purpose. We have feel we have a desire to impact our neighborhood and our community and our, our country. Absolutely. And, you know, I've been hearing this recurring conversation as well um, with the Generation Z for the most part. But I think some younger younger millennials are, are in it as well when you talk about how we dress and how we present ourselves. Uh, and there's a there's a dialogue that happens where folks will say, like, well, I don't want to adhere to Eurocentric ideals. Like, why do I have to cut my hair to get a job? Why do I have to put on a suit? Right. To, to, to show that I, I can conform to whatever this dress code is in this environment. I shouldn't have to do any of that. I want to be exactly who I am. So I'm, I'm bringing this up because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you in the eighties. When you meet a you now who's like, I'm not cutting my hair or I don't think this is necessary. What's your message to that young man? Because I do understand where they come from. I do. Cause I see, I see myself in them all the time. And I know that I probably felt I wasn't being understood. I was looking at it from dressing better to get a job or looking better to get a job. But it's not only that you want to, you're not dressing better for an occasion or you're not dressing better for a position. You, you're dressing up and you're dressing better for your own self-awareness and self-image. What about you having your own company? What about you building your own brand? What about you building? Cause there's no brand bigger than the brand that you're going to create for yourself. So you want to create a brand, you want to create a look, you want to create an image that's going to reach the whole world. But that brand starts with you. The higher self-image you have about yourself and you feel about yourself, the more that you can feel proud of what you're building and what you're doing. So it's not about really trying to look, oh, you just want to look like the white man, or you're just trying to look like, you know, 
it's, it's not about that. I don't think I look like a white man. I think I look like I think I look like my father. I think I look like uh, Mr. Phelps, who worked at DMV. He was the executive uh, that I that I witnessed. I think I look like uh, Fred Price, who was a, a mentor of mine. Those are the people who I think I look like and I want to emulate. So it's not about uh, a color. It's about uh, when people, my uncle, I haven't talked about him yet, but um, my 96-year-old uncle, who I, I'm his primary caretaker, every morning I go see him. I take uh, go shopping. I take care of his bill, everything. I do all of that. But um, he always told me people will, will treat you, dress how you want to be uh, addressed dress how you want to be addressed so he and he was uh he had his own business he didn't work for anybody he was a limo driver he had a bunch of limos and uh he or anytime you saw him he was dressed sharp clean and he used to always tell me dress how you want to be addressed you want to always look the part and those words always stuck by me so what is not about dressing uh for the white person or dress it's about uh, having that self-awareness and self-image about yourself because you're representing your business. You're representing your brand. You're representing your purpose. When people see me, I want them to see, oh, and we always ask this question. When you see somebody walking down the street wearing a suit, what thoughts come to your mind? And people say, doing something important, uh, wealthy, rich, uh, working, all positive attributes. So it's just subconscious. When you see somebody looking well, you automatically get those thoughts in your mind. It's called the 7-Eleven rule. For the first seven seconds, we we see somebody, we automatically think of 11 characteristics about who we think they are. doesn't have to be true, but this is who we think they are just based on that first seven seconds. So you want to have that. You want to use that to your advantage. You want to use that power of the 7-Eleven to your advantage. So that's why looking your best is always important. That's great. Um, so let's talk a bit about your books. We, we have them in the the background here for, for the benefit of those who are just listening uh to this episode tell me about your the books that you've written wow uh something i never thought i would be a part of um but while working for dmv uh a female friend of mine on facebook sade adu she had a book project an anthology where she was looking for people to partner with, be a part of her book and i said you know what then I'm, i might be interested in that so i reached out to her i said i want to be a part of it and I wound up being the only male. So it was mm. 12 women, <laughs> one man. I was the only guy. It was 21 uh, negoti- negotiating success from 24 different authors. So uh, I was part of her program. So that was cool. But after that, I was like, you know what? Why not? Since I was the only man in that, why not do a men's book and really talk about men giving their uh, strategies of how they succeeded in life. So uh, we did a Suited for Success in line with the company that suits you, Suited for Success, Volume 1, where we got 25 men together from all over the country sharing their stories of how they navigated success through trials, tribulations, and challenges in their life. And that was like my first book. Because that went so well, we did uh, Suited for Success, Volume 2, uh, where, again, you got 25 another 25 men sharing their story. And I think that that was so powerful to me because I love build, bringing people together. I love collaborating and have 25 black men and 25 so 50 black men come together in two books, sharing their stories of uh, navigating success and speaking to the younger generation I thought was so powerful. And uh, so that was who the first success by two. Me and my brother, we said, well, okay, let's do a children's book 
so we can uh, impact children, let them know how important their image is growing up, teaching them about suits. And it's an excellent family story, a family, a story about a, a son who needs a suit for school, but he doesn't have it. And he brings that to his father. And uh, I was fortunate enough to put me and my brother, we were fortunate to put our father in the story who passed, my uncle, who I told you about. My son is the main character. So I thought that that was just so dope that we was able to do that for that Suchu kid. And lastly, right now, my latest book out is called Still I Thrive. And that is a story about, that was a book about 24 men and women coming together, sharing their stories of how they navigated COVID. And uh, last year, quarantine shut down everything. They talk about how they pivoted in their business and in their, in their, in their life to be successful. So I'm very excited about that. It just dropped out this month, Still I Thrive. Uh, so those are books that I bought. So talking about these collaborative efforts, you know, I think sometimes people steer away from that because they're like, oh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. How do we work out the money piece? There's a lot of things I think that people think about when you get so many people involved in a, in a project. But how did you ensure like quality and a unified voice for lack of a better word, when you have that many people collaborating? Or or were, was that not a concern? That's always a concern, a major concern. And actually, um, based on these those three that I've done, uh, those three collaborative efforts, I'm actually doing, uh, at the end of the year, I'm working on a fourth one, but this one is going to explain to people how they can do it themselves. They can start it because it is a lot of questions. So, but as long as you have a great communication up front and you let everybody know Every single thing that's going to happen. Now, will everybody listen to what you say? <laughs> no, <Of course> not. <laughs> you're going to have people at the end say, well, what about this? Even though you said it 20 times, that's going to happen. But yeah, my job as a visionary, as they call it, is just to be upfront, let her communicate thoroughly about everything, every part of the project, what, what they can expect from me, what I'm expecting from them, how the project is going to flow, what's going to happen. And as long as you do that, it's a beautiful thing. It's just that when there is a lack of communication, people's minds begin to wonder. People's minds wonder, then comes dissension. But if you have communication, you're up front, ask, you ask me any question, anything you want to ask me anytime. You know, you let them know you're accessible, then it's no issue whatsoever. So what has your promotion process been like, you know, as, a, as an independent anything, author, artist? We know it's it's a grind to not only get your book out there, but recoup your costs and, and really make a dent in terms of some commercial sales. So what does promotion look like for you? I mean, it's whatever, get in where you fit in, but not, but you try to mainly uh, leverage relationships because I have people that have good media positions or being on an excellent podcast like yourself and just not being afraid to go out and, and, and spread the word. When somebody, when uh, Kevin Hart comes out with a movie, you'll see him on the late night show, the, the today show, you know, they're all over promoting it. So that's basically what you have to do. You have to use your social media, use your emails, use your network, use your family, your friends, spread the word. And a good thing about having a collaborative effort, if it's 24 of us, 25 of us, then we're all pushing the same project and it's going out even more so because they're pushing the same thing you're pushing. And so then you have book sales, you have book signings, you have uh, as much as you can do to promote what you're doing. And um, that's when you have to lean on your uh, your network. And sometimes you got to, uh, if you have a good PR person, 
they'll get you, get you on different shows. And, you know, we've been fortunate to be on Here and Now a few times. I was on Toya Beasley, um, Lenny Green, uh, Channel 4. Um, so just, just trying to really navigate your relationships and uh, spread the word about what you're doing. For sure. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, I, I hate, well, I don't hate it, but I, I'll, I'll use last year when uh, March of last year, that sushi was on a grind. Schools was calling us all over the place. We had about 10 contracts lined up, had a lot of things going on. We were working at the homeless shelters, going in there on a weekly basis and just doing everything. And then came the shutdown and quarantine and everything is canceled. You can't go anywhere. Uh, you know, what's going on. And like I said, I'm the primary caretaker for my uncle. So with everything, all, all my contracts was canceled, I still had to take care of him, make sure he was fine. I mean, he's a, he, he's paralyzed on his right side and can't move, he's 96. But man, his mind is sharp as a double-edged sword. So he, like, you can't tell him, oh, I can't do that for you, uncle. He Like, he don't understand. He has zero tolerance for that. So, I mean... But it was during that time where I was like, wow, I have to take care of them. I have to take care of my household, have my children, have my wife, um, help my mother. So it, all of these things were like felt like a, everything was coming to a, a, just a head. And like you, I really didn't know the direction to go in and what to do. And it, it was a really, really struggling time uh, for me for a moment. And so I was like, wow, what can I do? And that's when I, um, I got the idea to do the... Uh, Still, I thrive a uh, project because I said I can't be the only one that's going through this. You know, this can't be an isolated incident where I'm like, what's going on? What am I going to do? How am I going to make this turnaround? So that's when I got the idea to do that. But for about a month or two, I was, it really was a, a dark place because it was unknown territory for everybody. But I felt like I had a lot of people who were depending on me. And if I didn't make it, it would affect a lot of lives. So I had to really focus and think about how I was going to make this turn around and make this a successful opportunity because in every situation is an opportunity for growth and elevation. So, and I, and that's what happened. When I did the book. I, I started studying uh, stocks and options. So I started doing options a lot. I took real estate classes. Um, it was just, a, I just felt I had to do some, some things to make the most of what was happening. And thank God over, over a year later, you know, you see some of the fruits of things that you've been doing. And uh, so I, I believe that that was a time that fits uh, that, that, that situation. And I think when you've built a lot of momentum and you have all these irons in the fire, I mean, to your, to your earlier point, like no, nobody knew that this was even a possibility. It, it really was. I mean, I think we've been saying this is an unprecedented time now for 18 months, but it really was unprecedented. Nobody expected everything to shut down in the way that it did. And basically like the funnel to be cut off financially in a lot of ways. But when something like that happens and everything you thought you had in the pipeline is on pause, I think fear can set in in a way where people hold on to whatever money they do have. Mm -hmm. They don't want to invest in a new idea because it's like, well, what if it doesn't work? Is you have to fight that? And that goes to investing in the stock market as well or options also. Does you have to fight that, that psychological battle? Um, the stock market, the first I say the stock market, stock market, not so much because my brother, he has started maybe a month or so before me. 
And when that month, when he, when I caught up to him, like when I started, he was already $80,000 up. <laughs> so it didn't take much for me to say, okay, I believe if you can do that, I know I can do it too. So the stock market part wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, and it's not, it's still unstable, but I just felt confident that I can make it, you know, I could do well in that. Uh, but with the book, with, with most projects, you get that anxiety that will this work? Do I know, do I know, you know, to be frank, you like, do I know what the heck I'm talking about? Like, is this going to happen? Is this going to work? What if, you know, so those thoughts do come to mind, but I, I kind of know now that that's just part of the process. Those thoughts are going to come. You're going to have that feeling, but still go forward despite how you may feel. So, um, so to answer your question, yeah, that I did have that feeling and anxiety at times, but I felt that I have there are things that I have to do if I want to see some of the results that I need to see. And do you feel like your vision for that suits you has evolved in this time that you've been at home? I, I definitely. Um, remember, we started just helping men coming home from prison. That was our initial thought. You know, men coming from prison, let's help them get. Uh, suits. But then now we've added homeless shelters. We've added uh, schools K through 12. We have the children's book and we have the older books. We've added uh, merchandise. We have shirts. We have hoodies. Uh, we had masks. I mean, we was just, <laughs> we was, you know, it's just, uh, and I always use the scripture from the, the Bible. It says the, uh, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seed. But once you plant it, it grows and it becomes the largest trees and even the birds of heaven come and, and dwell under it. And it, it, I always remember that. And it states that even though you may start out doing one thing, if you're purposed at it and you're excellent at it, it can grow and it can be something that can sustain sustain you and be something that's beautiful for the world to see. But uh, just have to keep going forward and not be afraid of what negative can happen, but of what the positive impact that you can have. For sure. So thinking about all that you put out into the world, right? The work that you do with that suits you, your books, the one that's being released, being a primary caregiver, which we all know is not easy, right? Mm -hmm. Being a provider, a husband, all of those things. How do you refill your tank? Wow. How do I? I mean, sometimes just, uh, from not with my family, sometimes just some alone time. You know, I like to go for a nice drive, listen to some music. Sometimes I think, you know, I'm in the, I think I'm James Bond. You know, I like to drive with my music blasting and relaxing. Um, sometimes it's maybe just watching a, a movie or a sporting event. Sometimes it's listening to uh, E.T., Eric Thomas, or some motivational speaker words. I, it used to be playing Madden and, and uh, Xbox but I just don't have time for that anymore. So it's mainly just refueling, sometimes taking a pause, going out, going for a walk, exercising, you know, being healthy. You know, at one point during last year, I think I was up to 196 pounds. And I was like, you know what? This this isn't me. I can't do this. So you know, I, I read about intermittent fasting. So I started that and I really enjoyed it. And I and I've been I, I've been doing that and I'm actually down now to 178 pounds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I believe that, you know, so just trying to be the best that I can be for myself. And in a perfect world, you you have these sons, 
you have the path that you've taken and the work that you do in a community, do you have a desire for them to follow in your footsteps and pick up the torch? Great question. Um, let me preface, let me say this. Um, my son, I have twin boys and they were diagnosed with autism. Mm. So that adds another element to everything else that's been going on. So I would love for them to do that, but I also know that they have their own journey and their own path. And I'm very sensitive and very committed to helping them to fulfill whatever path that is. But I want them to know that no matter what they have, uh, they have a father who is there for them to um, help them to navigate a system who's going to be in their corner, who's going to be their cheerleader. I want them to know that uh, no matter what. So if it's, I had one of the greatest times this past summer um one of my sons who i took to great adventure with me this is his first time you know in great adventure uh, and i was like i wonder if he's gonna get on the rise or, or if he's gonna be a little nervous to get on the rise he got on every single roller coaster every single and i was surprised like because you know i'm even hesitant to get on some of them but he got on every single ride and that really i really had a great day that day uh, so yeah, so just making sure that they know that I'm in their corner no matter what. And I think I'm I'm so glad you you brought that up because I think sometimes when a child is not what they call neurotypical, mm-hmm. right? There's always this fear of like, can I should I bring them in this environment? What's the reaction gonna be here? What what does their life look like? And you know, I, I've heard people say, particularly in our communities, oh, I, you know, I'll never be able to do X, Y, and Z with my son because he's on the spectrum where I'll never be able to have this experience and not thinking about just maybe the thought of being, now I shouldn't say not thinking, but the thought of being supportive, no matter what their journey is, may not be top of mind, right? And and not looking at it in such a positive light and that this is experience we did not expect, but it's their experience. And I want them to know that I'm in their corner and that they're going to thrive and, and whatever that means for them, whatever thriving means for them, they're going to do that. So I'm so happy you, you you shared that. Right. If I could piggyback on that, that's a very real reality. Um, because even with church, because, you know, I grew up in church, I go to church. And that is a very real reality as far as me bringing them in that environment. Because they're not going to be just like, they're not going to sit for two, three hours and listen. You know, like, they're just not going to do that. So I have to be sensitive to the fact that, yes, I want to bring them that environment, but then I don't want them, I don't want to put them in an environment where it's not really great for them at that moment for hours to sit there. So a lot of people, and I think that really needs to be talked about a lot more because a lot of people, they'll they'll say, well, you know, you should bring your kids to church and be around, which is true. But at the same time, you have to be sensitive to their needs and what's really you know, you don't want them, you know, they may make noise or did you do something that's un that's not conventional and you don't want them to draw too much. So it's a big, it's, it's something, and I pray for parents that have to go through that because you, you want to do things, but you never know how it's going to, is it beneficial for them all the time? Is it the right thing to do? So these are thoughts that I go through even now, you know, Sunday's coming up. This, you know, how is it going to be in church? What should we do? So those are th- real thoughts that people have to deal with. And uh, they're 12 now, so they're bigger guys, you know. So it's just something that is not a topic that's talked about a lot. 
And, you know, so like I said, I'm there for them for their journey uh, to support them. But I'm also sensitive to say I'm not going to make them sit in a church service for two or three hours and, you know, sit down, you know, keep, you know, keep to that. I wouldn't want that if I was a child. So right. I'm not going to I'm not going to do that to them. Does that make me a bad parent? Because I don't want to put them. No, I have to be sensitive to my needs, to their needs, to make to make to make it right for everybody. And I mean, if we want to keep it all the way real, <laughs> a lot of churches are not equipped for that experience either. Right. They they don't have the resources. They, they're not ready for that. Or sometimes I think it's them trying to force a parent to quiet a child or exit or trying to pray it away or, or what have you. Um, so I think that dialogue and sort of expectations and, and the ability um, to, to be comfortable in those environments, it really goes both ways. And particularly in, in the in black churches, we need to do a better job of offering support and opportunity to families who are who are in this situation for sure. Right. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Because the parents sometimes they may not want to say, you know, you, you want to be in faith, you want to, you know, it's a, it's a whole lot of dynamics that go with it. But um what the what the answer is, I don't have the exact answer, but I know that from my experience, I've learned that I had to be sensitive with them in certain environments. I mean, we'll go out in the street, we'll hang out, we'll go to parks, we do different things like that. But in a closed environment, somebody's home or church or something like that, I have I'm as a parent very sensitive about putting them in an environment where they're not going to be uh, their best. Mm-hmm. I think it's another book in there somewhere, Mister Kersey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Nah, that's cool. That's cool. This is the most I've actually talked about it on any podcast or or about it at all. But um, I believe that it's uh, you know, it needed to be said. And it's it's something, it's a real situation that a lot of people go through. Absolutely. So tell people where they can find you online. Uh I'm not on social media that much. No, I'm joking. I'm on <laughs> nobody was on social media yesterday, right? It was Facebook and <laughs> literally nobody. <laughs> No, but they can find us on uh, at that suits you on all social media and also me individually at PK Kersey, Facebook, LinkedIn, everything. Uh, We we post everything and you can see the work that we're doing. Go to our website, www.thatsuitsyou.org, where you can get the books. Uh, You can order our workshops for schools, Uh, contacts and emails, all the information is on the website or on the social media. Um, yeah, so they can reach out and talk to us about you know, working together, doing some partnerships or whatever. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I'm glad we touched on some topics that you may not have expected to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got my dancing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what's up. I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been an excellent host. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. We always say we're not a monolith. There are many dimensions to us. And I love when it comes out in the interview, for sure. <laughs> I got one more thing I want to say. Can I say it? Yes, of course. Um, you see the candle there? Yes. That is a Brooklyn candle from uh, a, young, a young Black lady named Naya Cam, a company's love notes. I think she would be an excellent guest on your show. Perfect. Well, you know, we come for the referrals always. <laughs> so I'm, I'm writing that down. We'll be following up about that. Absolutely. All right, cool, cool. <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners... You know the drill. If you've enjoyed this conversation or if you want to support that suits you and the work that PK Kersey and his team are doing, please go visit the website, follow them on social media. 
Uh, any way that you can contribute, talent, time, or treasure, you know, where we are proponents of that here, do that. Just keep up with what he has going on. Or if you want to talk to him as well, we have a lot of folks who listen to the show who have their own platforms. You know, we are all about promoting our own within the community. So do that. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell three, four people about or maybe even 10. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.